0: Hello, everyone. I'm Philip Kaiser, president and partner of Marion Goodman Gallery. On behalf of Marion, the partners, in the gallery, I would like to welcome everyone to our talk with Hans Ulrich Obrist about Ettore Spalletti. Welcome, Hans Ulrich. It's a great pleasure to have you and a great honor. I don't really think I need to introduce you. You've, you're all over the place. You've been the artistic director at the Serpentine Gallery in London for quite a while. And as far as I know, you met Ettore rather late in his life for an interview for his Monaco show, but I'm sure you will elaborate on that. But I'm very happy to have you. And I'm also very happy that this event is taking place on January 26th. Today is or would be Ettore's 82nd birthday. And uh, I think it's a nice way to commemorate the life and the work and to celebrate his beautiful show that's currently up in New York. For all of you who have time, it's up until early March. It's the first show in New York after two shows in Paris and London. We're very happy about it. hans I'm happy to have you here and I will pass the mic to you now. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, Philip. Uh, and uh, welcome you all tonight to this uh, event in memory of uh, Ettore Spalletti on occasion of his 82nd birthday. I'm delighted to speak about Etoe here and, and remember him and uh, his extraordinary practice. Uh, and as Philip said, I actually recorded this conversation with Eto, a very long conversation. We spent many hours together in his studio and there were not only moments of recording, but there were also many moments of silence because I think in a way silence is very much part of uh, of Ettore's work and there were just moments where we would sit in the studio and look and look and look again and then there were moments we would we would record. But actually my first encounter with Ettore goes back to the beginning of the 90s when I just had started to, to curate and um, I, I actually began my work at the Musée d'Art Moderne de la Ville de Paris. And it was an extraordinary experience to work there with uh, the then director of the Musée d'Art Moderne, Suzanne Pagé um, and Suzanne brought together at the Musée d'Art Moderne, not only many of the leading contemporary artists of uh, of our time, but also connected it always to history and uh, made these sort of transhistoric connections in, in the museum. And there was actually quite at the beginning of the 90's a show of Ettore and it was uh, Suzanne who, um, who introduced us. Also, um, Franz West played a big role in this dialogue with Ettore, um, because Franz West, with whom I was friends from the beginning of the 90's, always said, I always talked about Ettore, and I think it's important what Franz said, Franz kind of said that Ettore was an artist-artist, an artist whom artists admire, whom artists adore, and I think this idea of the artist-artist is a really important dimension of the practice. Um, Ettore attended art school in Pescara, and one thing which is important which he told me of these early experiences of, uh, of, of him and of the genesis of his early work is that he had to actually walk along the street by the sea And uh, on the way to school, he would very often actually uh, just linger on the the beach. He would stop almost enchanted uh, and be enchanted by the Adriatic Sea, which dissolves so freely almost towards infinity. And at a certain time early in the morning, as he told me, it loses the skyline as well, where the colors between the sky and the sea come together and everything expands. And I think it's kind of interesting looking at the work to think about this very, very early experience of, 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 of Ettore with with the sea. And it's at that time that he started to paint. And sometimes he felt that the colors looked too aggressive. So very early on, as a student already, uh, he threw buckets of water on the colors to actually reach a lightness in the color. And that's of course something which played a role throughout his work, this the presence of water worked with fountains also, and also this idea of bringing water into the color. When I asked him, which I think is always interesting to see where the catalogue resume begins, what's the kind of first work an artist thinks is no longer student work. He was telling me about the end of the 60s and he was telling me about that moment he was actually seeking opacity. Uh, and seeking opacity, he made these two small rectangular paintings, one next to the other, And there it is already the two colors he used so often, blue and pink. And these are the colors he used throughout his life. And he thought of pink as the color of complexion, which is never fixed and transforms continuously according to the mood, the experience, sort of every day is different. And then the blue uh, has the same quality. It's a color difficult to find in nature, uh, as Ettore explained, we are immersed in in the blue. It was also striking to spend time with him in the studio because the studio is the place he went every single day and he would often walk. I saw him walk in the studio slowly. He would move a piece, he would close a curtain. He would remove some ash from a smoked cigarette. He looked for hospitality as he said and he would also read poetry. I think the connection to poetry was a very important one whilst I was in the studio, he read poems to me of Sandro Penna, of Giuseppe Ungaretti, of Emily Dickinson, and many others. So, so I think the connection, the lifelong connection to poetry, he built a bridge between art and poetry. And that also happened in the books, about which I'm going to talk at the very end. And um, for him, it had to do with freeing himself from everything. He, he felt that he found painting only when he freed himself from everything, when Uh, basically uh, that state uh, was reached. And when I asked him about the technique, he actually read uh, notes because it was also his practice actually to write from the seventies where he said, I obtain a paste by mixing preparatory plaster with glue and spread it still warm on the canvas on a wall. The support can be a canvas or a board or not at all, but a plaster thickness or a fresco instead. If I could, I would work directly on the wall. And I think that sort of set me something which again accompanied him throughout his work. He often used exhibitions as a place of experiment. He made works as an exhibition. He thought the exhibition as a work throughout the 70s. Uh, one example was in Bologna in the Ferruccio Fata gallery. He basically put these tilted panels high on the wall. He put the triptych on the floor. Experiments with display. You know, a painting placed was an angle on the wall. Often, the paintings were actually painted on both sides, and then, of course, when they were tilted, you had the backside of the painting, um, you know, being present on the wall. Uh, And um, for example, for this show in Ferruccio Fata Gallery, which is a good example of such an experiment in the 70s, he would also on the day of the opening spread talcum talc all over the floor, so there was a thin invisible layer, there was a slight balance instability. And I think that's something I felt a lot in the show, that there was silence, but there was always also, was a strange east, there was a slight balance instability, as he called it. We have columns, Bases are recurrent. The column is an object that, of course, exists throughout the history of art. And and Ettore would revisit it. Um, he also would revisit it, of course, in in his works in public space for the cathedral in retro emilia and it's connected to uh, actually churches because the 14th century benedictine churches the benedictine churches in abruzzo have always a column and sometimes it's a solitary column and sometimes it's used actually as an architectural structure um, and of course this idea of chapels of doing projects actually uh, Four Chapels, Four Churches is something which is very much part of these spiritual places Ettore created. And he told me in the conversation, a spiritual place helps with our search for well-being like a sunrise or a sunset seen while strolling on the beach. Goes back to the beginning, right? To this description of experience at the beach or a ray of sunlight reaching you through the trees of a forest that seemingly points you towards a path. And of course, in all these works he did in public space, but also in exhibitions, we can experience actually the main character being the color and the color keeps changing. It goes from light blue to blue, to green, to pink. It's, it's always changing. It's, it's never twice the same. I mean, it's something we can also see with uh, windows often. No, if you think about Gerhard Richter's Um, glass window in the Kölner Dome. Each time one sees it, it's very, very different. And I think that's also true for Ettore. I think one thing, because I mentioned the experience with the beach, we also need to mention the mountain. Because where his studio was, it was not only the connection to the sea, but there is also the connection to the mountain. And the mountain is always present. I think it's almost like in Cézanne, where there is the uh, Mont Saint Victoire or Etelatnan, who just passed away at the end of last year, the extraordinary poet and artist. Uh, who, uh, once I asked her who is her best friend, she told me that the Mount Tamalpais uh, near San Francisco is the best friend she has encountered in her long life. And, uh, uh, and of course, she painted the Mount Tamalpais again and again. Or if you think about Giovanni Segantini, no, who, who said, I want to see my mountains, Rolio. Well, you know, Vedere le mie montagne. And the mountains were very important in Ettore. They were always present because the Apennines in Abruzzo, uh, which reached the highest peak with Gran Sasso, he often drew uh, these mountains and uh, and looked at them when he would sit in his studio and, and think and wait. So it's the sea and it's the mountains. One thing we can see also in the images that very often he worked on, on rooms, you know? and, uh, in his studio it was incredibly impressive to actually experience uh, these rooms. There was a gray room, there was a red room, there was a white room, and he called these rooms spiritual rooms. There were rooms filled entirely with light and in each room there were some paintings on the wall, um, the rooms were all painted in white, but then you're actually inside the rooms you you realize that the walls aren't white anymore. All of a sudden they, they absorb the color of the pigments dispersed within. And so the room in a way becomes volume, right? The room in a way becomes, yeah, becomes sculpture. And I think Ettore summarized that very beautifully when he said that um, he liked touching the whole space uh, and that when he did these spaces, he thinks of the artwork as a gift, as a, as a place of, uh, of hospitality. Um, in my conversations, and that's something I ask in all the conversations I have with artists, I always ask the artists about their unrealized projects. I think it's interesting that we know a great deal about architect unrealized projects because they, they publish them all the time. It's part of the competition culture in the architecture world. Uh, very often projects also get realized actually later on because they're published and it creates an awareness but in the art world we know almost nothing about artists unrealized projects and that awareness really was uh, uh, created for me by Alighiero Boetti another Italian artist when I met him as a teenager in Rome and Boetti said you know we should really ask artists about what they would like to do and haven't been able to do uh, projects which have been too big to be realized or too small to be realized or uh, utopic projects, unrealizable projects, or projects which are maybe too time intense to be realized, or projects which are censored. Doris uh, Lessing always told me there are also the projects which the artist maybe couldn't realize because they haven't dared to realize them. Astorias Lessing was saying, everybody has somehow a self-censor project. So within this whole range of the unrealized, I was curious what were Ettore's unrealized project. And that's how our um, long, long conversation actually in his studio ended. And has said that there are uh, not so many because he always recombines images um, and atmospheres uh, actually to tell them through the drawing and that uh, very often one project leads to the next and he didn't really have this idea of unrealized sort of maquettes, but he did have a few uh, nevertheless. And there was particularly a fountain. He wanted to create fountains. He says the world needs fountains as resting places that cities need resting places. And um, he wanted uh, actually to do another public sculpture, which would be a model of a very long walk. Uh, it's almost like a sort of a Robert Walser idea, no, of a, a, a promenadology of a, of a walk. And he wanted, uh, you imagine uh, this maquette, we saw it in the studio, they were basically on the sides, uh, water flows. So water, we are back to the water, which is always there. And then it's possible to walk on a very narrow stripe of color Uh, and on this very narrow stripe of color some of his sculptures would be placed. It's almost like a a sculpture walk surrounded by water. That's maybe his biggest unrealized project. Um, And Then at the very, very end, we actually, I asked him about his artist book and we realized that there was an unrealized book that actually Um, uh, uh, because of course the books played a big role also in this 2018 show which Marie-Claude Beau and Cristiano Raimondi actually curated for the Nouveau Musée National de Monaco and the interview we recorded was done for the book of this exhibition and uh, there was a a, a very interesting um, uh, uh, sculptural presence of books and uh, I kind of was aware of a few artist books um, and in his studio in Capelle Sultavo, it's near Pescara, the studio. He had, of course, many more of these artist books. So I asked Ettore if he could look at all of them. And uh, uh, artist books is interesting because I think they they never get the same attention other artists' works re- receive. That they're somehow um, the least known aspects often of an artist. But when artists actually work on artist books, it's very often for them as important as an exhibition. They work sometimes for a long time on that and of course many artists, I mean, Lawrence Wiener has to be mentioned because such a, a great pioneer of, of artist books. Alighiero Boetti, whom I mentioned before, actually there's a whole book called Beyond Books of, um, of Alighiero Boetti's uh, artist books. There's so many extraordinary uh, artist books. Etel Adnan, I mentioned before, there are dozens of extraordinary artist books she created, including of course, uh, the Leporellos, or, Gerhard Richter. There is a book, actually, um, uh, of Gerhard Richter's books called "Bücher" in 2013. Uh, uh, but in a way, um, until such a book is published, there is usually very little awareness of all the books an artist has done. And uh, Ettore had so many, many books, and um, uh, and I was kind of asking him to to go to go through them because very often, also the catalogs he did were kind of. Artist books. He did them very carefully. So for example, an edition for the Kleve Kurhaus uh, in 2009 called Kleve. He did a book of 3,000 pages of deep blue tissue paper. There was no text, no images. There were solely monochrome papers. Uh, and so, in a way, for Spalletti, his books were, we can say, a very integral part of, uh, of the practice. And so, as early as the, the 90s, uh, Spalletti made the first monochromous book. The book cover, and I remember that actually when I met him in the early 90s, he he, he, he talked about that the book cover is washed silk in the same red as the tissue paper inside of it, and he wanted to tell the story of the red through these sheets, no? so it's a book made of color to sort of tell the story of, of red, and it became also an exhibition catalog uh, of a show called um, Sal de Fête, he did in Strasbourg, so it's an artist book and it's also a catalog, but there is no information printed on it, uh, not even the exhibition title. Um, and it was the core idea of his work, the sort of ever-changing quality of a single color, because that was what Ettore felt his entire work was about. And also the dissolving of it, the, the color that gives another color. Um, and he said that children in the village where he grew up in the post-war period actually used his paper, which is a very poor paper Uh, to get their cheeks red or to paint uh, the lips. So it sort of was actually used in a functional way. It's a childhood memory Um, and uh, the wet paper lost its color and sort of made the skin pink, he told me. So that leads us to the tactility of the book, which was very important for Ettore. And all the catalogs uh, of exhibitions had to do with this tactility, Harvest chose the materials. That's why you often have tissue paper. Um, uh, the feeling is actually of going through a book when you, when, you, when you physically move the page, it's like a feeling of a transformation, no? And that's of course true also for all the installation, no? with this reciprocal relationship between light and color. To quote once more Etové, he told me I tried to look for a paper with a tactile feeling which belongs to my work. Uh, and this is why I have used the tissue paper. The studio transforms continuously as well, so this possibility that things are near or far, getting the same light or a different light returns completely new images. But if it wasn't like that, it would have been impossible for me uh, in, um, it would have been impossible for me in fifty years, Spalletti said to paint. So, so in that sense, the books and, and the catalogs, for him were spaces, right? They were not secondary you know archive tools but there were spaces, like the exhibition were spaces. Um, And then I asked him about, you know, the role of these books, he suddenly kind of said, maybe there should be a book of all the books, a meta book. And I'm very delighted that posthumously, this book is now in work, it will come out, I think in spring, it's called Libri, and it will for the first time bring together um, all these extraordinary experiments with artist books of Ettore Spaletti, which are, far too little known and which include really extremely radical books. Like for example, he did a whole series of books constituted only by, by one page, like one page books. Uh, to end this um, uh, presentation and conversation today about um, Spalletti's work, I, we thought that it would be nice to show actually uh, for the first time an extract from the film because when I was in the studio of Ettore, we filmed the conversation. Uh, so we're going to show now a, a subtitled short extract from the film. Thank you all so much for joining tonight. The poetry, because the poetry
2: is collected in a page, so you have everything. And in the story, when I find a poetry that I like a lot, I write it behind the table of the painting. E quindi cioè, ci sono perse eh, dietro queste tavole una raccolta di poesie. Alcune, alcune per esempio, eh, le ho. so che c'è un 150 per centocinquanta rastremato con la foglia d'oro Dove c'è dietro scritta una poesia, sotto un cielo tutto azzurro, cosa aspetto, cosa anelo. Tutto è pace, ma c'è un velo di tristezza che non chiedo. Sandro Penna.